Okay, what about the nations? Okay, many nations will be blessed through his seed. They have many descendants. What else? Two big things. There's the descendants and there's the land. There's the land. Okay. Um, anything else? Abraham took matters in his own hands. Okay. That, how'd that work out? It was mixed. <laughs> it was mixed. Okay. Uh, and it's important to remember, again, what we're going to be talking about tonight, that uh, this is the covenant with Abraham involved the first sacrifice in the shedding of blood. Okay, so don't forget that. That's an important thing to remember. Uh, okay, what about Sinai? What did you learn from the Sinai narrative? Giving of the Ten Commandments, what were they for? to separate them from the nations around them, make them different. God delivered them out of Egypt. He saved them out of Egypt to be a people unto himself. That's not unlike us. God saves us, and then what does he want us to do? Be his people different from the world. It's exactly the same dynamic as he did with the the nation of Israel. He, He does with each one of our lives. What else from Sinai? Period. The wandering. Okay, because of disobedience, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And important for tonight's topic, this is also the period in which the tabernacle was developed. The tabernacle came into being. And then this is also the period in which we read about the uh, the book of Judges takes place during this period. Uh, and then we have the cycle of Judges. And what was that, what was that cycle like? Well, it was like a Ferris wheel. Yeah, it was like going around and around and around. You know, there's the, there was this, you know, this faithfulness, and there was idolatry, and then there was punishment, and there was a repentance, and then there was a new you know, uh, deliverer, so to speak, a new judge came in, and the cycle started all over again. Uh, so remember that. And that brings us to Kings. Uh, and we started that last week. And what do we know about the kings so far? What do you know about the kings so far? Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was not. Um, why did God not want them to have a king? He was their king. Exactly right. God was their king. But they wanted a king like the nations around them impinging upon their uniqueness from the world, right? Okay, so this is what we'll see as this unfolds. If you've read ahead, you know the story. Uh, this does not work out real well in the long run. Um, so what else? Anything else about this period with the king so far? All right, so we first have Saul, and then we have David. Okay, um, And what was unique about David? Again, this is important in covenantal theology. Right? Okay, there was also the Davidic covenant. This this involves another covenant that we have here. Uh, And the covenant is going to be, I'm going to put someone from your line as the Messiah to be the deliverer of people, right? So that's going to be in his, his lineage. That's going to be the Davidic covenant. Now, of course, looking back at the, uh, the, the casket 
uh, acrostic we just saw. Now, we're at kings, but yet tonight, okay, we have kings, and after kings comes the exile, and the exile comes the temple, but tonight we're talking about Solomon's temple. So we're not skipping ahead. We're not skipping, you know, the exile entirely, and we're not going to be talking about this, the temple on the timeline uh, that the timeline talks about. We're talking about Solomon's temple. The temple that the timeline talks about comes, uh, it begins the second temple period, around 539 B.C., and this is 400 years after the temple we're talking about tonight. Okay, so just to be clear, we're not, we're not skipping ahead. We're not jumping ahead here. All right. Okay. So what I'd like for you to do, uh, this is your kind of the first uh, you know, t- uh, group discussion here, is I want you to the, hopefully have your Bibles with you. Uh, I want you to open it to 2 Chronicles 7 and read uh, verses 1 through 7 and talk about what you might have been thinking or feeling about God specifically if you were one of the participants offering sacrifices at the dedication of Solomon's temple. What, you might, what might you have been feeling or thinking about God as you were participating in this elaborate um, uh, dedication of Solomon's temple? Okay, we're going to call a stop there, and what we want to do now is hear from some of you about what your thoughts are to this particular um, uh, setup. So if you have something to say, please speak loudly so we can all hear, or I can at least repeat it for the uh, recording's sake. So uh, anybody, the floor is open. You're in this crowd experiencing this rather dynamic event. What, do you think, what are you thinking? What are you thinking about God in all of this? Okay, Overwhelmed. Okay, right. right, thank you. What else? Where do they get what? The animals? And there were quite a few animals, weren't there? There were a lot of animals. Uh, it, it was an agrarian society, uh, and in shepherding, of, uh, uh, in, in, um, just, this was people's livelihood were, were animals, so there was no shortage of animals. Uh, and you know, starting even with, with Abraham, and this is you know, uh, much later, but this was the way life was, so there was no shortage of the animals to sacrifice. Okay, so your particular sacrifice wasn't important because there were so many? All right, okay. All right, good. Yes? Certainly, a fire from heaven will get your attention. It's a pretty impactful, you know, event. Uh, And then just, again, the sheer number of animals and the sacrifices. I mean, just imagine how bloody that was. I mean, just how horrendous 
that was, um, tremendously so. So it was a, it was a celebration, but I, I guess from, from our sanitized 21st century life in Charlotte, you know, what a, what a mess, you know, chaotic. Yeah, I mean, like, did, did these animals not scream? I, I mean, just it, it was just loud. It's all this. Yeah, I mean, it just it would have been uh, just. I think overwhelming is kind of a good word. Yeah, I think for I think for most of us. So, uh, so good. Well, thank you for taking a few minutes to do that because I want to kind of get your mindset on on what this really entailed and how graphic it was uh, at times. So, um, let's talk about. Oh, can I hit that? Okay. Oop. There we go. So someone tell us, what is a temple? Like generically, what's a temple? A place of worship. A place of worship for usually who or what? A deity of some kind. So generically, you know, that's basically what we <laughs> see here. All right. Generic, it's a place dedicated to the service or worship of a deity or deities. Biblically, what is the temple? House of God. It's the uh, dwelling place of God, or you know, perhaps even more specifically, the place where God's presence may be known. The place where God's presence may be known. How many of you are familiar with the phrase progressive revelation? Okay. Those of you who aren't, progressive revelation simply means that the un- that the story of redemption is unfolding. We see it progressing from the pages of Genesis to Revelation. God didn't tell us everything about the story of redemption in Genesis. So it is progressive. Uh, we see you know, Jesus uh, is ultimately revealed in the New Testament, but progressively we see him starting to appear in the pages of the Old Testament. And this is somewhat similar with the idea of the, uh, God's dwelling with his people. Uh, progressive, so what we're going to talk, look at for the next, uh, the, really the remainder of our time this, this evening is progressive revelation of how God expresses his desire to dwell with his people. And first we see it in creation, uh, in, uh, where we see that the universe as God's temple. Then we see it in the Garden of Eden, kind of the Garden of Eden as a temple, because we certainly read in Genesis 3.8 that the man and the woman uh, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was doing what? Walking in the garden. So he was dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden. His presence was there in the garden. Thereby, his presence was there. It could be a sort of the Garden of Eden was somewhat of a temple because his presence was there in the biblical context. And then comes the tabernacle, the tabernacle as a temple. Um, and then uh, we see Solomon's temple comes along. Then after Solomon's temple, we have the second temple. And after the second temple, Jesus the Messiah as the temple. That's the next thing we see in Scripture that references the temple is Jesus. Uh, and then we see the church as a temple. And then ultimately, at the end, for all eternity, there is no temple, per se. But yet, there is, which we will see at the end of our time together uh, tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 
each of these eight representations of the temple that are progressively revealed through history, through redemptive history. So let's start with the universe as God's, uh, as a temple of God's dwelling with creation. Uh, in Isaiah 66.1, we read, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And in Ephesians 4.10, the apostle Paul writes, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And then the Garden of Eden as a temple, God dwelling with Adam and Eve, as we just talked about uh, in Genesis 3.8, where he was walking with them. Again, the man and woman's wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Next, the tabernacle is a temple. Now, I know back in the fall, Kathy Dunderdale did a very nice uh, uh, lesson for all of you um, on, uh, on the tabernacle, and she talked about the Day of Atonement. So what we're going to do is a little bit of a refresher on that from a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, so hopefully this will add to the knowledge that Kathy gave you back in the fall. Uh, so the uh, tabernacle uh, was, uh, was built around 1450 B.C., 1450 B.C. is approximately when it came into being. Uh, it symbolized the, uh, God's dwelling place among the Israelites. Uh, and the, the tabernacle was set up specifically per God's instructions. And they were very specific. And you can read about that uh, in two chapters in Exodus 26 and 27. tells us all about God's instructions on how to uh, construct the, uh, the tabernacle. Uh, and then in Exodus 25, 1 and verses 8 and 9, the Lord said to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So this is one representation of the, uh, the tabernacle. Um, and uh, it, you can look. You can go online and look at various illustrations and a lot of different ones. But this, they all are pretty similar to this. Uh, so I, I kind of like this one because it, it was really nice, nice graphic. Uh, it shows you in the upper right-hand corner the uh, size of the uh, American football field in conjunction to the size of the tabernacle. So you know, it was actually 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. And all of this, everything you see here was portable. Because why? This is in the wilderness. This is for the four years. So as they were on the move, they took the tabernacle with them. Uh, and, uh, and it was in a t the tabernacle basically in this form was used for 500 years until Solomon's temple was built. So about 500 years. Uh, this was a labor-intensive enterprise. Uh, Numbers 4, chapters 46 and 49 tell us about the people who serviced the tabernacle. And it says in part that all the men from 30 to 50 years old who came to do the work of serving and carrying the tent of meeting, which it was also called the tabernacle, tent of meeting, same structure, numbered. Anybody want to guess? Eight thousand five hundred and eighty. Eight thousand five hundred and eighty people to carry this thing around the wilderness for 40 years, you know. And, and so it was guys from 
30 to 50, maybe there weren't people much older than that back then, but you know, even if there were, they, they, they couldn't bear the labor that this thing required you know, to do. So uh, very, very fascinating. Uh, and what's interesting here is that the layout of the town, whenever they set it up, they always set it up in an east-west orientation. You see a little, uh, so you can see the uh, sign of the compass down at the bottom, east and west. So the east was the entrance, and the Holy of Holies at the back end there was the, uh, the west end of the tabernacle. This was done intentionally to represent Adam and Eve's being expelled from Eden. When they were expelled from Eden, which direction did they go? East. They were expelled east of Eden. Okay. In order to go back to Eden, in other words, in order to go back to God, which direction would they have to have gone? West. And so the tabernacle was set up this way to illustrate that they are retracing their steps from being cast out of Eden to the east and then turning around and going back to the west to God's presence. So that's why it was always set up in the east-west orientation. I did not know that until I prepared for this lesson. I think it's really fascinating stuff. Okay. Um, <clears throat> And so the, uh, uh, we have a detailed description. Uh, this is kind of the inside. This is an inside look uh, at the tabernacle, uh, as we just saw a few minutes ago. So we see the east over here and the west over here. Uh, on the very, uh, over at the east, we see the, the brazen altar or the bronze altar, as it's sometimes referred to. Uh, and this is where the actual sacrifices were made, the bulls, the goats, uh, the, the rams and all were, were, were done there, were sacrificed there. The bronze laver here. This was where the priests would wash their hands and wash their feet before they sacrificed the animals so that they were at least ceremonial clean. Uh, and then they would go into, through that veil on the right-hand side, into the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was a golden lampstand, which is the menorah these days, and it represented the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. Uh, and then the table of showbread, also known as the table of presence, or the bread of presence, uh, it represents God's presence there. Was, there was always fresh bread, and this was set up, fresh bread, unleavened bread there on the table. Uh, and then there was the altar of incense, which were like the people's prayers going up, uh, up to heaven. Then you see the, 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 the veil um, here, uh, right there, uh, which the, the only person who could go through the veil was who? The high priest. The only one to go was the high priest. And he went from the holy place through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Uh, and in the Holy of Holies was what? The Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. We, we know that, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 25, 16. What else was in there? Aaron's what? Aaron's staff, Aaron's rod, and what else? A jar of manna. Okay. And we, we, we only, from the Old Testament, we only know about the, the, the scroll, or the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It's not until we get into the New Testament, specifically Hebrews 9, 4, that we read that these other two uh, things are in the uh, Ark of the Covenant also. It's, uh, Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff, uh, and the jar of manna. Okay. And of course, uh, as Kathy did an excellent job talking about when, uh, back in, uh, I think, November it was, um, we have uh, the sacrifices that were made in the, uh, in the tabernacle. And the sacrifices were designed to, number one, atone for sin. They were also designed to express devotion of the people of uh, Israel to Yahweh. 
and also to maintain spiritual purity of God's people. So those are the primary uh, reasons um, why the sacrifices were done. Uh, and then we have the very, those are the, those are the sacrifices, and then we have the types of offerings that are offered in the, uh, in the tabernacle. So we have the burnt offerings, which are voluntary, and they were made to express devotion uh, you know, to God. And the sacrifice was generally a male uh, animal of some kind, a bull, a sheep, or a goat. Uh, and then there were sin offerings. These were presented to atone for uh, un- un- unintentional sins uh, or impurities. And the sacrifice for a sin offering really depended on the person's status. So people of different status had different requirements for sacrificing when making a sin offering. And then there were the guilt offerings made to atone for specific offenses or sins that required restitution. And the sacrifice here was a ram uh, in addition to uh, any other animal sacrifice. And then there were the peace offerings. And peace offerings were voluntary to express thanksgiving, fellowship, and joy. And people could sacrifice any number of animals uh, as a peace offering. It could be a bull, a cow, a sheep, or a goat. Uh, And then there was what was called the red heifer sacrifice. This was used to cleanse individuals from ritual purity. And this particular sacrifice were the ashes of a red heifer. So those are the primary sacrificial offerings that were given in the temple. There were other minor ones too. There were other things, but these are the main ones. And specifically, things changed a little bit on the Day of Atonement. Again, this is something that Kathy talked about. Uh, And just to kind of highlight a couple of things, how often was the Day of Atonement observed? Once a year. It was once a year. And it was to uh, to atone for the sins of the entire nation. And this was was done by the high priest. And the... uh, the key sacrifices here are as follows. Uh, there was the bull, and the bull was sacrificed by the high priest for himself. It was a sin offering for himself. He had to be cleansed from sin before he could clean, atone for the sins of the people. So, so he uh, had this particular sacrifice first. And then there were two goats. One goat was sacrificed and the other goat was, does anybody know what the other goat was for? The scapegoat, okay? And, and what was the purpose of the scapegoat? The high priest would lay his hands on the, on the scapegoat, and representing the transfer of the people's sins onto the, onto the goat, and the goat would be banished from the camp, okay, out into the, the wilderness. And so, you know, their, their sins would be covered, sins would escape, so scapegoat, that's where it comes from. Uh, and then we have uh, incense was offered, and the incense was offered to provide a cloud that would veil the Ark of the Covenant and shield the high priest from God's presence, lest he die. He couldn't actually see God's presence, so, so the smoke from the incense was used to veil the, um, the Ark of the Covenant in God's presence. Uh, and then the priest would take the blood of the bull and the other goat, and he would sprinkle it inside the Holy of Holies, which symbolized the purification and atonement for the sins of the people. Okay? Uh, so uh, what's important here, extremely important, 
in the story of redemption uh, has to do with blood sacrifice. Okay. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And that is carried through all the way the New Testament and Jesus' sacrifice. Okay. Um, and then we also read here in Hebrews 9, 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. Um, you know, it's like, so in other words, God's saying here, I have given the creature's life to you to cover your sins, uh, you know, with, with blood. Uh, and those who are covered with the blood sacrifice are set free from the consequences of sin. That was the whole idea. Uh, and we have to remember that these sacrifices foreshadowed Jesus' sacrifice and shed blood on the cross for our sins. So let's go to group discussion number two. While talking with someone about God's plan of redemption, you make the statement, Jesus shed his blood for us. Curious, the person asks, what does blood have to do with God's plan of redemption? Discuss how you might answer that question. Okay, let's stop there. And let's have a little bit of a uh, discussion about some of the things that you came up with. Hear from some of you about what you would do or how you would answer this person's question. Who wants to volunteer? How would you answer this? Some of the things you would say. That's an excellent point. Great place to begin. Okay, but why? Okay. So what's the answer to the but why? <laughs> because he's God. Because <laughs> God's a just God, and a just God requires penalty for sin. And they might say, I get that, but why blood? Correct. Life is in the blood. You have to address the weight of sin, absolutely. Right. Now, so it's your death or it's someone else's. 
you know, it's never really stated in the scriptures why God, this was God's, why this was God's plan. What was he, you know, why did he use these methods? That's not really, because he's God. This is how he chose to do it. And we very often have a problem with God doing certain things because we put him in the same category as us. We anthropomorphize God. Uh, and there's a, I don't know what the scripture is, but it, he, he basically says, hey, you thought I was altogether like you. And especially when we read some parts of the Old Testament where, where God tells the Israelites, go in and wipe them all out. Everybody, no matter the age, no matter the sex, kill them all. Animals and everybody, the whole thing. You go, why would a loving God, and this is a whole other, we're not going to go down that path, but you know, you get it. You, yeah, 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 women and children, a whole lot, yeah. What's, what? And then you'll get people say, well, that's not the kind of God I want to follow. Okay. A whole other story which we're not going to talk about tonight. But the point I'm making is because and you go over, the, and there's a passage in the New Testament where it talks about uh, does the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Okay. And what we forget is that we're creatures that God made. And he can do with us whatever he wants to do with us. Just like whatever, if you're an artist, whatever piece of art you do, you can do whatever you want to do with that. You can put it on display or you can trash it. Uh, and it's the same, but we, we have a sense that, but, but he would still, with a loving God, do that. Again, this isn't the, the, the time or place for that particular discussion, but when people start asking these difficult questions, you know, we have to have some sense. Uh, and what I usually fall back on is, you know, there, part of what we believe as Christians is a mystery. And not everything's clear to us, and that's what faith's all about. Uh, but we can't judge God's actions by us. Because we're not in a place to do that. We're the created, and the created can't judge the creator. Uh, and you know, that may resonate with some people, that may not. You know, all we can do is share, uh, but we can't. You know, we trust the Holy Spirit to do the, the real the hard work inside the, the spirit. Yes, sir? That's an excellent point. Uh, across all cultures, people are horrified by the loss of blood because it means ultimately the loss of life. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's an excellent point. So here's a, uh, just kind of a summary point uh, in answer, one possible answer to this particular uh, discussion point. Beginning in the Old Testament, God declared that atonement for sin only comes at the cost of another's life. That is the shedding of the blood of a sacrificial animal. The Old Testament blood sacrifices were temporary and only atoned for sin partially and for a short time, hence the need for the sacrifices to be repeated. The sacrifice that Jesus made to atone for sin was not an animal's blood, but his own, cleansing us from sin once and for all. All right. Now, now, in our last... You know, 25 minutes, we're finally at Solomon's Temple. Okay, here we are. We're at Solomon's Temple now. Okay. Uh, so uh, David laments, and he says, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Okay. And he's saying, this isn't right. Why should I be living as I am in this beautiful house, and God's in the tent? 
doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and then Nathan the prophet comes along and uh, basically tells him, um, you know, uh, God never asked you to do that. God never asked you to build uh, a, a tent, uh, a temple for him. Uh, but he's going to raise up one of your sons to build the temple for him. And, of course, this offspring is Solomon. And what is the reason that Solomon was chosen to build a temple instead of David? Anybody know? David was a warrior. David was a warrior. Second Chronicles 22, 7 through 9. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You were not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. So in God's eyes, David was such a warrior, and to the extent that he had shed so much blood, for reason we don't know, God, has, God determined that he was so defiled that he was not the one to build God a house. Uh, and the person who was going to do that was Solomon. And you'll notice, uh, if you can see I don't know, in the back at all, but down at the very bottom, I have in parentheses after Solomon the word peace. In the Hebrew, this is actually somewhat of a pun because Solomon sounds like the Hebrew word shalom. So you could read this saying that his name will be shalom and I will grant Israel shalom and quiet during his reign. See, you know a little bit of Hebrew. Some of this stuff is really, really interesting. And I only know a little bit of Hebrew, so. Uh, but it can really, really be interesting and fascinating. And then there is this, uh, you know, just uh, astounding declaration that Nathan uh, makes um, here after this point in 1 Chronicles 17, 10, uh, that uh, he relays this to, uh, to David. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. You're not to build a house for me, David. I, Yahweh, your God, I'm going to build a house for you. What did God mean by that? What? A legacy. It's going to be a legacy. Uh, so what does God mean? God's going to establish a royal line, a house for David. A royal line, a house for David. Uh, and in so doing, David's house will be greater than the temple because the temple is only going to be temporary. But David's house, his lineage, is going to be everlasting because it's going to result in who? The Messiah, Jesus. Okay. So it's a far greater. What God is offering to Solomon is far greater than what's, uh, uh, they, what what. God is offering David is far greater than what David was offering God in this instance. Okay. Um, and, of course, the ultimate fulfillment will come in Jesus the Messiah. Okay. So Solomon begins construction uh, in 967 B.C. in the fourth year of his reign. 
Uh, there are no divine instructions like there were with the tabernacle, none whatsoever. Uh, uh, and uh, it took seven years to complete the building project of the temple. And even though there were no God-specific spoken instructions designs on how to build a temple, one would guess, what did they use as a pattern? The tabernacle, right. Only, uh, you know, only makes sense. So it's modeled uh, after the tabernacle. It has the same east-west orientation. It was filled with imagery like the tabernacle was. It has flowers. It has the menorah, which is, symbolizes the tree of life. And even in all of its splendor, Solomon knows it can't contain the God of the universe. He's, he's you know, has all those wisdom that God's given him, so he knows this. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 6.18, we read Solomon saying, but God, uh, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So Solomon's very aware that even though God's glory fills the temple, uh, as we saw in our opening discussion uh, in Second Chronicles 7, uh, it does not contain God. It's not where God lives at, at all. Um, even though it's filled with the glory of God, uh, it doesn't contain God. Rather, uh, this is where God, you know, God is enthroned in the heavens, and even the heavens can't contain God, per se. Uh, this is an illustration of uh, what Solomon's temple may have looked like. So this is the, the external appearance here. And over here, you can see how this is patterned after the tabernacle. You've got the, uh, the bronze uh, labor over here, um, the bronze altar where the sacrifices are made, Labor here where the priests wash. Then you have the entrance here. This is the, uh, the holy place uh, where the menorah and the showbread and the altar of incense are. There's, uh, there's a veil here. It's not shown in this diagram, but there's the veil here. And then back behind this is where you have uh, the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. Uh, so it's patterned you know, after the, the tabernacle, which you know, makes perfect sense because that's what they had to go by. Okay. Uh, now... After the dedication ceremony, there is a conditional covenant that God makes with Solomon. So we read, this is the first part of the covenant, promise number one. This is the good part. This is the part you like to hear. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe uh, my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. Okay? And we know in these conditional covenants, now there are some unconditional covenants that we've already talked about, but some of the conditional covenants is always an if-then proposition. If this, then that. Okay? So this is a bilateral covenant. And here comes part two, the promise number two, which is the bad. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Okay. Uh, so that's the, like the blessing and the curse. You know, this, if you do this, all will go well. If you don't do this, then it's not going to go well. So what, in your reading, what was Solomon's downfall? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, okay, just like Eden. 
All right, okay, we've heard from the men in the room. <laughs> yeah, he worships other gods, uh, and, uh, and he was influenced to do so by some of his wives, uh, according, according to Scripture, okay? But what was the mandate that God had given him about that, marrying foreign wives? What did he say to don't, don't do it. Don't do it at all. Now, uh, if you go back to Deuteronomy, and we're going back uh, basically um, about 467 years before Solomon's temple, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7, um, 17. Now, there's a section here. It goes from Deuteronomy 7, uh, 14 down to the end of that chapter, uh, which is uh, 20. There's, and 1717 says, and, this talk, and all this talks about the king. So God knew 500, of course, God knows everything, right? This is not a surprise. But it's recorded in Scripture 500 years before Israel asked for a king, that God knows you're going to ask for a king. Uh, because he begins here by, by saying, when you enter the land the Lord has given you uh, and have taken possession of it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the nations around us. This is like 500 years beforehand. And so he says here at 717 about the king, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And Solomon knew this, but he disobeyed. And this was his, you know, uh, and this was his downfall. Uh, you, can, you can't make out some of that, I apologize. But, you know, love many foreign women, 700 wives of royal birth, and some of this was, was politically motivated to make treaties and stuff. You make a treaty, you marry the other, you know, the other king's daughter or something. Right? Uh, 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This was his downfall. This was his downfall. Uh, and then we have the consequences of his downfall, and what were they? What were some of the consequences? The land was going to be taken away. Um, the first consequence that we see is that God raised up adversaries against Solomon. Jeroboam being one of the primary ones, and Jeroboam was in his, basically, court. He was one of his officials. Um, and so God raises up adversaries against Solomon. Uh, and also the kingdom is torn out of Solomon's hand. Uh, we have this account where the prophet Ahijah uh, announced that he, God, was going to tear the kingdom of Israel out of Solomon's hands, but not until when? Okay. After Solomon died. So it wasn't going to be given to Rehoboam until after Solomon died. So the, the kingdom, although it says, he's going to tear the kingdom out of your hand, it's really out of the hand of your lineage, which is going to be his son Rehoboam. Okay. Uh, and this happens eventually uh, in 930 BC, uh, which uh, ushers in the divided kingdom, which we will be talking about uh, in subsequent weeks. So uh, 930 is when that happened. And then, of course, Babylon destroys Solomon's temple in 586 BC. And we'll talk about more of that in detail coming up. But uh, this is going to be our final table discussion for the evening. 
Uh, and this could take a, you know, a couple of minutes if you get some, some thoughts. So uh, I, I hope this will engender some good conversation. There are two parts to this. Uh, if you only get through one, then that's fine. Um, so first one. The authors of the Casket Empty series say that God's presence in Solomon's temple is a wonderful and climactic moment in the history of Israel. Do you agree with the statement? If so, why? If not, why not? And then the authors also say that the departure of God's presence and the destruction of the temple will mark the lowest point in Israel's history. Do you agree with this statement? If so, why? If not, why not? You see some eyes glazing over. That's right. He's doing this at 7.45 at night. <laughs> we got to think about this one. So, all right, give it some thought. Either you just pick, pick one and have a good time chatting about it. Okay, time's up. Uh, let's take the first one here. Um, so the authors of Cascadentes say that the God, God's presence of Solomon's temple is a wonderful climatic moment in the history of Israel. Um, do you agree or disagree? Who agrees? Okay. Why? Okay? Anybody disagree? Okay, they say the disagrees. Hey, Joe? Okay, it's just a building, God's been with them the whole time. Okay? Okay, the Messiah would be the climactic moment. Okay? Very good. How about the second one? The authors say that the departure of God's presence and the destruction of the temple will mark the lowest point in Israel's history. Do you agree with the statement? If so, why? Why not? Who, who agrees with that statement? Okay, why? Okay. All right, very good. Uh, so anybody uh, disagree with that? Okay, Daniel? Okay, question. Yeah, if God dwelt, left the temple, where does he dwell now? Well, again, it was a place where you could, uh, God's presence could be known. We know that God never dwelt there. But from their perspective, you know, now how can we know God if his presence is no longer there? It's a matter perhaps of semantics. So see, the answer to these, not necessarily right or wrong, but it's contextual because the authors of the study, were talk, they're looking at the Old Testament period in, in, this, in this context, okay? They're not entertaining the New Testament at this point. So here, from, a, from the Old Testament perspective, uh, you know, yeah, uh, that the, you know, having God's presence in the temple, that was climactic. That was huge. So they could say definitively that that was the high point. And then secondly, his departure was the low point. You, you can kind of, you know, see that in the context of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, if we want to carry this, these statements forward across the entire spectrum of the um, the story of redemption, then we can probably say something like this. God's presence in Solomon's temple, while certainly wonderful, falls short of being climactic because God's presence was conditional and temporary. God's presence with Israel reaches its climax in Jesus the Messiah. So again, when you see it in the context of all of redemptive history, then the, the climax is yet to come. Uh, and then the destruction of Solomon's temple, while certainly a low point in Israel's history, falls short of being the lowest. Its lowest point comes when Israel rejects Jesus of Nazareth as its Messiah. So again, when you look at the full scope of the redemptive story, there's something worse than, you know, 
than what they were seeing just in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? You understand the context? Okay, all right, great. So uh, in the uh, five minutes we have left, uh, let's kind of wrap up a couple of other uh, uh, aspects of the temple we want to look at. First of all, there's the second temple, which was uh, the post-exilic temple. Now, we're going to talk about the exile in a couple of weeks. So this is after the 70 years of exile of Judah in Babylon. They come back, and they build another temple, the second temple, beginning 516 B.C. It's also known as Zerubbabel's temple, and Zerubbabel, was, he led the first group of uh, the Israelites coming back to Jerusalem, to Judah, about 40,000 people. Uh, and there's no biblical record of God's presence ever dwelling in the second temple. Uh, and this is also known as Herod's temple, which we see uh, in, in the New Testament you know, era, is what we uh, uh, really refer to the same temple as. And the Herod took Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple, and he refurbished it, rebuilt it, uh, starting probably around um, 20 B.C. or so. And then he finished up. He increased the size by a, a multiple of two. Uh, and the area of the Temple Mount... Anybody been to Israel, by the way? Israel? Okay. Uh, the Temple Mount, uh, he, he, uh, it went from like 17 acres to 36 acres. Okay. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was just a it was huge you know, undertaking. And of course, if you've been to, been to Jerusalem uh, and you have the western wall, which is the western wall of this temple. Uh, I had the fortune, uh, good fortune to go there last April and uh, we actually, uh, just there were just five of us, so it was really kind of nice. Uh, we found this, this little gated area. It was just like a hole in the ground and we walked down and we went underneath and, you know, and we saw like the, st- the foundation of this temple. I mean, like, it was like, wow. You can, like, touch history. It was, it was like, it was amazing. It really was amazing. So uh, this is the second temple. Uh, and then, of course, we have Jesus the Messiah as a temple. John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in John 2, 19 and 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you were going to raise it in three days? But the temple he was speaking of was his body. Okay, so Jesus is the temple. And then there is the church as a temple of God. Three scriptures here to point this out. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And this is the present church age that we live in where this is true. We are the temple. And in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. And then, to wrap it up, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21-2, where there really is no temple per se, we read, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So again, going back to our big idea for the evening. Solomon's temple, in all its splendor and sacrificial rituals, could not effectually atone for sin, yet it foreshadows the ultimate temple and all-sufficient sacrifice, Jesus the Messiah, who provides the way for God to dwell with his people forever. Now, in connect, we would really like to try to connect our, our lessons to the overall story of redemption, the one story of redemption. So I try to do this uh, with this summary statement. When you reflect on the bloodstained sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the corresponding bloodstained crucifixion of Jesus Christ, never lose sight of the horrific cost the plan of redemption required so that the holy God can once again dwell with his people. That captures it in the one story of redemption, what the temple was all about and the sacrifice was all about for us. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, anybody who wants to you know, chat, I'm available afterwards uh, if you want to do so. So thank you uh, for your time tonight. Thank you for your attention. Look forward to being uh, with you again in a couple of weeks. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for your story of redemption, the plan that uh, you conceived to restore us to you so that once again we could dwell with you and you would dwell with us. The grace, mercy, and the cost of the sacrifice that it took to get us to that point, to bring us together with you is beyond our comprehension and our gratitude. We thank you for revealing so much of your love to us in such a deep, meaningful, personal way. And we thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.